this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath artificial intelligence is on the verge of fundamentally changing the way human beings live and work and we have been hearing this a lot lately there are also many fears about the dangers posed by ai which range from mass disinformation and privacy risks to extinction of the human race itself and amid this debate over how to regulate ai so that we are able to benefit from it while keeping it safe governments around the world have been coming up with different proposals for ai governance and the latest is the biden administration's executive order on the safe secure and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence earlier we also had the european union coming out in april 2021 with a proposed artificial intelligence act which is still in the pipeline so what are the concerns shaping these initial moves towards ai regulation are there any fundamental principles that every ai law or regulatory regime needs to address and what are the potential conflicts say between the interests of ai researchers on the one hand and ordinary citizens and consumers on the other when such laws are being framed we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us dr mati poyonen from the helsinki institute for social sciences and humanities at the university of helsinki mati thank you so much for joining us and yeah thanks for inviting me and it's a pleasure it's a real pleasure to be again uh, on the podcast right great to have you back uh, mati so to start with i was wondering if you can give us uh, a brief idea of what are the real concerns about ai that are animating that are driving the legislative efforts of governments around the world what are the core concerns yeah sure so it's a it's actually a very interesting debate and uh, as somebody who has been following the debate uh, far before it became very publicly uh, kind of heated alongside chat gpt and some of the new models is that there has been a very kind of a mesh of different topics and themes that have been involved in uh, or under underpinning lying some of the debates around how to best regulate and legislate artificial intelligence so uh, i think a good way to start looking at this is that we start off with a kind of a negation or try to articulate or think about what potentially or what has been the kind of one of the one of the drivers of the debate that might not be the key thing to di- discuss in this uh, podcast podcast or in this conversation so there is a very popular kind of public conversation that has been going on around uh, the image of machines terminators artificial intelligence as this machines take over the world so there has been a very powerful debate around the kind of existential risk of ai which has been driving some of the debates and um, once we start going into regulatory aspects of it we can start seeing that there are various diverse interests that are actually underpinning the contemporary debates that are going on so part of this kind of what we call a existential ai narrative there has been a lot of work that has been done around what happens if ai becomes super super intelligence and takes over and becomes uh, this massive force that by the pure force of its intelligence drives humans into extinction so into kind of a subservient position or what, what have you but so there has been a counter narrative that has been emerging in many many kind of different respects to this uh, popular culture or this kind of narrative of ai as an existential threat is that one of the things that is often being hidden from the fact when we think about this very large questions around artificial intelligence 
is that what do these systems actually do and how are they being concretely implemented in different aspects of society? So there's a couple of versions of this, this kind of more critical narrative that has been advanced more in the attempts of trying to regulate different AI developments and companies. So one of them is that, and you can see, we can, we can start sketching out some of these debates as they're taking place on the public conversations and starting taking place also in the kind of online conversations that are going on. But the core idea behind that is that when we move away from this grand narrative of somehow AI becoming super intelligence and being able to kind of pose a certain existential threat to, uh, to humanity or, or to the, the ones who develop it, there has been various pressures of what are the actual concerns that now that systems are becoming very advanced, developed, and the, the progress of development is going at a very fast rate. So there's been pressure from society, societal pressure from civil society activism to think about how can we, what aspects of AI should be regulated in terms of questions around biases in the systems. Questions around privacy have been a very big issue around things like facial recognition technology and their practical uses. Increasingly, there has been talk about what happens with, especially generative AI, of the types of fake or artificial or synthetic content that can be generated. There's also been one big debate that has been also underlying some of these things, themes is that what, what becomes or what are the consequences of the use of automated AI systems and especially security and especially in um, kind of weapons and um, autonomous weapons. And there's been a big debate around what happens when AI becomes embedded into weapon systems and what are the limits and what kind of rules and regulations should we have them. And as we have been seeing in Ukraine and Gaza, this is already a concern that many of the systems are in one form or another. Using using uh, different AI models to, to drive or kind of augment the systems that are being used. So again, many of these kind of different interests have been meshing for a couple of years, and now they're starting to concretely find form or kind of manifest in various regulations that are being proposed. And I think in that context, uh, there's been uh, two of the key kind of legislative things that have been done. There was the there was the EU AI Act that you mentioned, which was in 2021, where some of these principles were starting to be sketched sketched out into something practical of what would it mean in practice, and then the Biden executed the order. And in a way, the EU AI Act is the, is the kind of next step is going to be they're trying to move that into a very concrete legislation that then would provide guidelines and rules for this. So in a way, it's, a, it's the kind of environment seems to be ripe through these various influences for now to be the moment that some preliminary and, and legislatively binding legislations will, will emerge that we look at these various debates. And again, we can start sketching out some of the more detailed nuances out of this, but it's interesting now, especially with the Biden legislation or executive order, how these things are being increasingly pushed from governments and, and different actors. So yeah, that's a kind of very broad environment in which many of these various often conflicting and diverse debates have been kind of finding form in the last last two, three years. Right. right. Thank you for that, uh, Matty. I mean, uh, you've given a detailed overview of the kind of concerns. And I just want to pick uh, one of the threads uh, from your response, where you said uh, the kind of existential fears about AI uh, is may, may have been a little bit uh, exaggerated, so to speak. There are other narratives one needs to pay attention to. And in this context of existential fears, you, you sort of talked about artificial intelligence becoming some kind of a super intelligence which could enslave human beings and so on. Now, there is also another kind of existential uh, fears or narratives to do with AI, which I was sort of interested in your response. For example, the Biden administration's executive order, 
flags the risk of AI being used to create chemical, biological, radioactive or nuclear weapons, what they call CBRN. And one example is, you know, you, AI, an AI model could be used to create the genetic makeup of a dangerous virus, which could then be synthesized using commercially available genetic material in a lab, you know. So how serious is this kind of a possibility, which could potentially, you know, pose an existential survivability threat to the human race itself? I mean, CRBN or CBRN risks are, uh, how real are they? And can AI models really bring us to that kind of a dire situation or scenario? Yeah, definitely. So there's actually a very interesting history about this uh, this debate. And uh, one of the kind of pivotal moments in this narrative emer- emerging, there was an article on the dual use of a technical term that was used was on the dual use of artificial intelligence powered drug discovery. And it happened a few years back. And, and so uh, there was a bunch of scientists using machine learning models to determine the toxicity or the level of poison that different drugs that are being developed have. And as a part of a kind of a conference that they were preparing to submit to it, they said that what if we reverse the level of toxicity? So they were trying to find kind of drug discoveries that weren't toxic or didn't have toxic compounds. So they reversed the machine learning systems and they looked the opposite. So we can as easily use the same systems to try to identify certain combinations of molecules and certain combinations of materials that then would be highly toxic. And they realized at that point that it was actually very easy to do. And within a couple of, within a, within just a number of hours, they were, the AI that they were using was able to suggest something like tens of thousands of uh, toxic compounds that in principle, they were never tested, but in principle would be more poisonous or more dangerous to human beings than the more most the, the most poisonous existing tox- toxic compounds or materials available. So in a way, that started the, the kind of process that in fact, machine learning models, this kind of dual use applies to many other aspects as well. So they can be used to uh, produce or look for safety issues, but at the same time, Nothing stops them in principle from being also used for determining or or developing or coming up with models that actually improve the toxicity or the poisonous, or as you are saying, in in chemical chemical warfare, in biological warfare, radioactive nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. So that debate has kind of emerged underlying, and it has been picking up a bit of steam. In fact, that in a very practical sense, as we have seen with like pandemics and other things, a very carefully developed or produced virus could be also posing a major threat if it was done in bad actors or it was done for or nefarious purposes for different purposes of warfare or at the same time even by accident by that if you use these systems to develop new compounds something might emerge because of the capability of the ai and machine learning models of trying new combinations and other things so i think it's when we start looking at from this perspective i think this is where we move away from the fact that a machine can become super intelligence and and we move the kind of owners or the, or the focus of uh, responsibility into the types of people that are working with and how they can be used for various different perspectives. But I would, in a way, some of these are their level of complexity. And the example of the toxic compounds is perhaps in the, in the level that it could be potentially manageable within people who have access to some materials to be working around these things. But I think if you go into like the, what probably is the real concern that is going to be very imminent and, and happening and here we move the focus into different actors using it. So I think one of the key debates that has been going on for a long time is around autonomous weapons, which in principle 
are a bit similar to producing autonomous chemical or biological weapons for various uses. So the big debate has been, in fact, what happens when different warring or conflictual parties they start creating weapons that are outmatching each other, leading into this kind of AI arms race of being able to provide more effective war machines. Uh, Mati, sorry to interrupt. What exactly do you mean by autonomous weapons? Do you, are you just referring to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're not referring to just drones uh, which are operated by human beings. Or are you referring to some something like a robocop or a robotic soldier? Or uh, there was a robotic dog in one of those Charlie Brokers, uh, you know, uh, series where, you know, which goes around uh, biting and killing human beings in a dystopian uh, future. I mean, are, are these machines which then take the decision, take the call whether or not a person is a target and then act on that decision. Suppose the machine decides the person is a target according to whatever its algorithm or machine learning system is and then it decides to kill that person. Is that what an autonomous uh, weapon does? In, in a way, so uh, it's all of the above. So uh, it's anything from uh, my, micro drones to nano warfare to uh, there's a lot of kind of science fiction scenarios partially Still in the in the development, drones being one or the automatic targeting, they do have now new systems being developed where the kind of strategical warfare takes place through the use of machines. But as you rightfully mentioned there, I think the key debate or the criteria that is going on at the moment is that should the kill switch be ever given to a machine or should the kill switch always be in some human control? And in a way, when you carry warfare, is there an ethical dimension that you should you should not be able to grant the authority to actually do the final targeting or killing of individuals using using the kind of autonomous systems in place. And there have been a number of incidents where this this kind of viol- rule, ha- rule has already been violated. But I think that's where a lot of purely because it's various warfare tactics augmented by uh, machine learning and algorithms. So within the, within the military industrial complex, so to speak, what is the prevailing or the dominant uh, consensus or the train of thought? between one there might be let's say there are two camps one says the kill switch should be automated and the other one which says the kill switch should be always within the hands of human beings which one is on the ascendancy as of now today i mean which one is prevailing so in in the kind of public discussions is still being very much that it should be in human hands but what's happening especially when you have these certain war scenarios emerging that there is also a fear that if in terms of the arm, arms race, if the opposing side does certain things, so we have to be prepared in terms of uh, being able to counter this. So what has been happening, and this is the kind of, of course, things happen outside the public scrutiny, is that these systems are being developed in preparation that maybe the op- opposing side also had this system coming. So it's this kind of arms race development that has been going on that you see hints of when you look at some of the developments that are going on. So when you're mentioning the kind of risk of these things, I think, that's also one kind of loci or locus or where we have some very concrete challenges or risk of regulating the use of AI because in wartime, sometimes victory becomes more important than the rules that you actually operate operate by. So I don't know if that makes sense in the way I was, I was describing, describing it here. Right, right. No, no, I, I completely see what you're getting at. I mean, there is clearly a difference, uh, definitely, in terms of aims and if not tenor between the discourses on uh, this AI weaponry and kill switches, etc. in the public domain and what goes on within the strategic uh, military circles where, of course, everything is dictated by uh, an arms race scenario where you are you, you worry that 
your enemy or your adversary might be ahead of you might be planning something far more capable or maybe far more autonomous than what uh, you might be willing to do on moral grounds and therefore you also end up uh, pursuing those lines of uh, thought and research now coming back uh, to the governance side of things uh, matty i was just wondering we have been referring to the biden administration's executive order so i was just wondering if you can give us some kind of an idea of what, what exactly does it try to do is it does it set in place some kind of guidelines or is it some kind of a standards like the kind of standards which were developed before the internet became a thing or are there also enforceable punitive uh, aspects to it uh, which come into which kick into force at some particular point of time like what exactly does this executive order mean and do mm, yeah yeah that's a good good question so i think one of the things about uh, if you look at the landscape of ai regulation and what has been going on in the last couple of years is that there hasn't been strong legislation there has been proposals but there hasn't been strong legislation that would give uh, this legal teeth or legal power to regulating especially the ai companies that work with so the executive order is uh, both again we have to understand it within the context of the us uh, political system where executive order is a kind of a kind of a new legal mechanism but it's not is not parallel or is not exactly what would be assigning a legal system to regulate ai so what it does is that it provides the president can issue executive orders that allows it to do certain things while the president is in power which allows among other things that it it kind of allows enforcement is that it can guide and manage the federal government and budgets to use certain types of uh, policies and practices and it has also slightly more limited limited value in terms of doing actual laws within the constitution of the us but it's also something that the presidents can revoke so if for instance next elections are happening soon so if the next president can revoke that executive order so in the us context it has some power it doesn't go all the way to to coming up with a binding and uh, and uh, sustainable long term legal system but it has a lot of significant power both in terms of being able to guide financial resources in the us but i think more importantly where if you start looking at the kind of timing and the wording of the executive order it carries a lot of symbolic power of the direction that the us wants to take both domestically in some of the wordings and some of the kind of guidelines that is issued but also internationally that it was issued just in preparation i think there was an ai fairness summit that was taking place in the uk and then also the eu is now about to propose the exact wording of its new legislation so this is also a kind of a symbolic gesture that the us wants to take leadership and collaborate and be part of like establishing what might be some of the rules that will cover the use of use of ai in different domains and so in that sense it's a very important first move and i think there's been an interesting debate that has been emerging especially the us around some of the specifics specifics of the order right yeah i'm coming to the specifics of the order i was just wondering if if you can talk a little bit about uh, the specifics uh, uh, such as for instance i was interested in transparency when when we speak of ai regulation i mean for the lay person uh, you know it's it's a black box we don't really know what's going on inside that black box we know there's a lot of data inside it and and the ai spits out an answer to a question uh, based on all the data from which it has been learning uh and mimicking maybe i don't know so how do we ensure transparency you know we know also know for instance that the ai's uh, uh decision making is based on the data it has collected about human beings and what human beings have done and said and behaved so uh, at the end of the day it's all come from us and then there is some kind of a transition which happens where it is then telling us 
what is possible, what we can do, what we cannot do. So are there any standards or protocols in the executive order, for instance, with regard to transparency or or, or even with the EU Act, for instance? So you're you entirely correct that uh, if you take a system like ChatGPT, it pretty much has ingested everything that is publicly available on the internet and kind of put it into this big, big black box and stir it together through various mechanisms. And then that allows its power because of the size of the data that has been put into it. But in, in principle, what happens inside is a sequence of numbers that are very difficult for even computer scientists to decide or decipher or, or know exactly what parts of that model affect other parts and, and its kind of outputs and outcome. So the debate in terms of, I mean, transparency has been some of the kind of the themes that has been discussed a lot in terms of these emerging new AI models. But when you look at the wording of the regulation, transparency is often being used, but in practice, what some of the things that were mentioned in, in were things like safety checks and safety checks is more less about the kind of exactly trying to understand what happens inside the models because it becomes so difficult, but it's about trying to come up with different forms of understanding or how their implementation and operation would affect various stakeholders, partners, various uh, parts of society. And that takes this kind of safety checks where you, and this is when you see new models being launched by the big companies like Meta or, or they have done a lot of like due diligence of trying to check that using in various situations, they have this appropriate safety checks in place. And the executive order makes like that. Can you, can you give an example of, of, of something, uh, of some product and, and what a safety check would look like for that product? Like what, what, would it, like what would it seem like, a safety check? So a very simple example would be take a chatbot, for instance, uh, or take, take a major large language model chatbot. So when you start asking information, it does not include significant levels of bias towards certain uh, segments of society. So it's a way of trying to remove these biases before they become publicly implemented so that the, the kind of biases or imbalances, inequalities in the trading data are then not reflected in, in the output of these AI models. So there's a whole kind of emerging field of research called data audit or algorithmic audit where they are coming up with kind of checks and balances and guidelines of how different AI systems should be audited so that when you look at the various tasks that they are being implemented in and the various downstream tasks. You can see the, 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 the different checks and balance that should be placed across all of the all of the in, in going down this chain of different types of actions. So anything from like so that the model does not produce biased outcomes that are detrimental to certain sections of society to when you use them automating decisions that these automated decisions that the AI is in part of. So for instance deciding who gets employed or who, who is rented an apartment is, is not, again, unfairly targeting certain populations. So is this kind of, so the, the focus has slightly moved on from trying to understand exactly why these models decide something in the kind of statistical, mathematical, computer science sense to try to audit how, or to check out the safety checks of how these are being used in different different tasks and, and what, what are the mechanisms. And there's a long list and this is, there's no one way of, or there's a long list of data audit checks that companies have been, or, or legislators have been pro- proposing for trying to understand some of these uh, potential risks of, uh, of new models. So, so in, in that sense, you're right. It is, uh, it, is very, it is a very complicated task of trying to figure out how they are. 
Right, right. Thank you for that, Matty. I mean, of course, uh, this algorithmic audit or data audit, as you put it, is, uh, I mean, one can see that it is clearly one uh, possible tool for uh, regulating AI. And I was uh, I was also checking out the EU's proposal for an AI Act, uh, which, as you said, was put out in April 2021. And I found it interesting that it is it's proposing sort of different rules for different risks. And it, it has four categories from what I can make out. One is unacceptable risk, then you have high risk, then generative AI gets its own category, and then you have limited risk. I mean, I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on this approach in terms of graded uh, risk and different rules for each kind of risk? Yeah, so uh, I think in principle, any kind of legislation is, uh, well, there's two components to it, and one is that is exactly what what's the kind of structure or the framework through which they're trying to legislate for instance, artificial intelligence. But then the second part is and with this kind of four four categories that the EU proposed, I think the big political debate right now that is taking place is what is the exact wording or definitions of these risk categories. So when you're doing a legislation, the implementation of these in practice, because at the level, if you look at that it's high, high risk include, high risk technology is still, there is a big gap from there to go all the way to the practical legislation of what does it actually mean in practice. And I think that's what's being now honed out in the in the next stage of the legislation in the EU. But in principle, I think it's a good system. And I was looking at the wordings of some of these things. And, and uh, so the high risk means that certain technologies should be outright banned, which is one of the things that is often, often mentioned. And it is relatively still broad in terms of definitions that are being used there. And then there's another example, which is like high risks are things like facial recognition should be high risk and it should be subject to very strict requirements. But there are exceptions given in, in cases like when, when you need it for police work or, or anti-terrorism action. It's like what, what would be an unacceptable risk? I think you meant unacceptable, unacceptable risk should be outright banned, right? Like what, what? So the examples that were used in the wording of the, of the initial kind of proposal or the documentation were things like the social scoring system. And uh, using using things like having, a, and I, this is directly from some of the wordings, so they use a social scoring system as something that should be outright banned within the kind of high risk or Something which is already uh, apparently used in China? This is something similar. So kind of started doing like social scoring of democratic citizens within the, which goes in violation of some of the principles that the, the EU kind of prides itself on, on following. And there are things like having toys that encourage dangerous behavior and this there are certain examples, but it was still relatively unclear to me that what exactly was the different categories. So why, why would uh, why would something like autonomous driving or self-driving cars, Elon Musk is doing, I mean, he's sort of going into it a great deal. He wants to put out self-driving cars. So wh- what kind of risk would that uh, fall under? Because it could potentially kill someone and it's also uh, got a lot of benefits apparently. So but that, that's exactly where the devil comes in the details. So, so in my interpretation, this that would be considered a kind of a high risk category at the moment. That there should be certain specific regulations in place that would allow, again, what what are the worst case scenarios would be, would be accidents and uh, the car would would not perform or operate the way it's been designed to. So that would be considered in the high risk category. And and the limited risk is basically cases that were. And they make it quite clearly point out that most AI cases that are being developed are low risk. So it is things like a chat chatbot that that is very relatively innocuous and not not composed in any sensitive material. So I think in principle, I think the 
the structure is really good for a starting point, but I think devil is the detail. So how it becomes implemented in practice. And I think there's now a lot of political struggle, including a lot of lobbying going on from different companies of how different parts of the AI models and large language foundation models, generative AI can be then inputted into this. So how, how come generative AI gets its own category? It's somewhere, it falls between high risk and limited risk. It is there. And the reason it has, in my kind of reading of this, this uh, process is that it came after the first it came after the first uh, regulation offers so because it's it's such a new de- development. So in 2021, generative AI was barely something that people really, really took as the kind of central piece of development, but it only became much more powerful since then. There were some things about deep fakes and other things that were being discussed widely, but uh, in terms of its power that it has at the moment, it has been a very quick development. So I think they haven't really fit, fit that entirely into the different models so I mean, the things that are they are saying it would be that it would be disclosing that is is synthetic content generated by AI and that prevent them from generating illegal content and and also the copyright issue around the data that is being used to train them. But I I think the new version of it will have more detailed information of what actually does would this mean in practice. But again, I think it's the fast pace is so it, the pace is so fast that it's it's hard for legislation to keep up. Right. I mean, yeah, it's like a, it's like trying to hit a moving target, uh, so to speak. Uh, one last question, uh, Matty. We're running out of time, so I just wanted to have a quick uh, response from you on this, which is, I mean, this is one aspect you, you mentioned it briefly just now, uh, which is a big concern for anyone interested in AI regulation, which is the whole phenomenon of deep fakes. Uh, every, every, I mean, hardly a week goes by without a deep fake controversy uh, popping up on Twitter and Facebook. So are there any common approaches or safety guidelines that have been evolved or that are sort of uh, in the reckoning right now to check this phenomenon? There is a lot of stuff being done in terms of trying to develop this, but it's not very easy in terms of uh, coming up with a very simple solution to various things. And so some of the kind of things that you mentioned, uh, for instance, in the Slovenian elections that took place a couple of months ago, they had been demonstrating uses of it's not a fake video, but it's the fake audio voice of some of the political candidates. And there has been debate how much that influenced the final outcomes in a very tight election. And there has been, as I mentioned, there is a very growing concern or almost a panic about what's going to happen in the upcoming elections. Now that it's not only video, but you can also fake uh, audio text and at a scale and speed that has not been happening before. So in terms of when you start looking at the way that people are thinking about mitigating this or trying to prepare for its risks, there's a various a couple of different different kind of initiatives being done. And so I've been following it. So Witness has been one organization that has been trying to establish some guidelines through which companies and, and policymakers should respond to trying to think about it in a more systematic way what might be the risk of, of defakes and that. And because the thing is that at the same time, generative AI is being used for a lot of creative purposes, and the fact that it's being used for so-called inauthentic behavior or or kind of politically manipulated behavior, it's a very small component of it. So the balance is that how should we try to maintain the creative edge of it while, while dealing with these more nefarious purposes. UNESCO has a working group that they're trying to come up with some things. There's a kind of arms race in the, in the computer science uh, platform social media platform of trying to find ways of trying to watermark them or creating ways that you could actually detect how things are fake. I mean, I'm, I'm a lecturer at the university, so I lecture at the university. So now the debate is that how much can students be using them 
and what are the ways of catching them. So in a way, it's one of these things that has been going so quickly that the legislation, again, is trying to figure out what would be the best balance to draw out between the creative stuff and then it's being used for political purposes. I just wanted to add very quickly, if you have time, one thing that, because there are two fundamentally different strategies that are now being competed, dealing with especially the development of AI models. You have the proprietary models such as uh, MidJourney, and then you have ChatGPT and some other ones, which have quite strict control on the moderation of the content that can be produced by them, because they have been receiving a lot of criticism. Uh, but then there's a whole ecosystem of open source models that are then openly available that can be used for various purposes and have been already used for things like... Like, for example? Stable diffusion, for instance, was one of the big ones that was there. And many of, but it's even a more fundamental debate that because the foundation models, stable diffusion is no open source. So they basically open the model and people can fine tune them for further purposes. But there is now an interesting division rising both politically and and kind of within the, the corporate sphere between companies that want to keep models private. So things like Google, some of them are open source, but they want to keep the foundational models private or non-open source. And then companies like Meta and other ones who want to keep them open. And now the debate has been shifting all the way to like re- regulation that should open source models should be regulated potentially for the, their ability to generate things that have not been as moderated as big companies are able to do. At the same time, the other side is saying is that you're actually by re- overtly regulating this model's capability of doing things like also also they're using polit- as political disinformation. If you regulate them too much, that means you're actually giving big companies the support or the support for their business, and you're getting rid of the small creative, small companies working with open source. And that's also becoming, so there's a lot of active lobbying going on behind the scenes, where on the one hand, you have like some computer scientists like working for Meta who are saying open source ecosystem is better for development. It should be left open despite, despite some of the concerns, whereas then there's other one that we should regulate significantly so that the open source models won't be won't be given as much ability to cause cause the damage. So in a way, when you start looking at the kind of debate around, around regulation, it's also partially debate around who gets to own the systems and the infrastructures for building new types of content. And so when you're, when you're kind of looking at these proposals to regulate deepfakes, it, it builds into these various networks of different underlying debates that, that apply to a, more broadly also to like AI regulation that we have been discussing. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned a very interesting point just now, Matthew, between this whole debate between open source and proprietary or private uh, systems. You, you, you refer to chat GPT, you mentioned Meta, you mentioned uh, Google, which has got, I think, Bard. I was wondering, what do you, what, this, uh, what do you make of this XAI's uh, uh, systems? Because Elon Musk has been talking about uh, freeing uh, AI from proprietary control. He's been, I think, pushing for open source systems are they in a way uh, better compared to the proprietary ones well i mean the question is better is a very uh, some of them so if you look at like performance metrics they are getting very close and uh, they are better if they are fine tuned on very specific tasks but at the same time if you look at the large models because of the sheer financial clout and capability of companies like open air Open, open AI and then um, and uh, Google, Alphabet and other companies, there is still that kind of computational power that goes behind it. But I think that in a way, the idea there is that underpins a more fundamental debate of what do we mean or what is the kind of status of AI models in society. So there's been a lot of interesting work within the European context, which doesn't get mentioned as much, 
where they are building government subsidized funding models, uh, which are seen as kind of the infrastructure that is required for the new digital economy to operate, which would be partially partially run by companies, but also with significant government and university support that you would build alternative open models to the to the, the kind of major models that are being primarily run by American companies. That would be a bit like infrastructure in society that would be required to be able to work with the AI economy. So I think that's another interesting perspective that would be would be interesting to pick up that it's near, it's usually neither nor between commercial side or open side, but rather what is the ownership and the motivation for building these foundation models that you want to you want to kind of run the digital economy under. And again, so it, you can see the political contours of each of the debates are being played out in an interesting way. Right. I mean, that's a very good uh, point, Mighty. I appreciate uh, mentioning that, I mean, the point about ownership and motivation. So, w- w- finally, is, would, you, would you agree that uh, in, in, in the, the big picture sense, uh, it would be better both from the point of view of AI safety uh, as well as uh, regulation and so on for if, 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 if the regulatory regime were to aim for greater democratization, you know, greater democratization would mean dispersal of power rather than in a scenario where there is like one proprietor whom we count on to regulate, like like what we're seeing with Twitter, for instance. It's one man's whims uh, which uh, run the show. Whereas if you have a distributed sense of, uh, you know, decision-making in, in a democratized framework, you mentioned government subsidies uh, for open systems. Do you think on the whole that's the way to go forward? Well, if we take Twitter as an example, <laughs> these shows, as you rightfully mentioned, it shows an example where one man has a lot of power in determining what happens in a what we what could be in many respects be called a political important platform. I think it's a it's a kind of a diverse system. So one of the things that I have been or we have been reflecting on that in a way so if you look at the really large models and the resource they require, so it is very difficult for small companies to develop something that is parallel to, for instance, uh, ChatGPT or the GPT-4 model because of the sheer computational power required. So I think there should be some kind of a concerted effort to produce equal and fair and uh, and kind of democratically working AI models that act as like the infrastructure on which things are built so that people could compete and use them for various purposes. And there's the open source model. That's, that's make perfect sense. But many of the tasks that are actually de facto being done, both I work from the research perspective, but also within within that this kind of small business, small game business, that you can also do smaller models and custom models, and you can retrain them on various types of data. So if you want to diversify the types of data sources being used in the models, say for instance in the context of the global south, or in the context of parts of parts of India, smaller models are much easier to customize or work with within the kind of local contextual knowledge or local contextual data. So there are two things. I think the foundation models very important that they are very powerful, but then also the, re, the ability to retrain and kind of re, recalibrate or re, reuse these models for local purposes. I think that's something that is often also not discussed. And I think there's a lot of importance for open source or a kind of a slightly more democratic ability to, to train these systems for tasks that might not be as relevant to what open AI, for instance, wants to do. So again, if you think about it this way, you can see the kind of there's a space for various different types of models. Right. Thank you so much, Matty. That's a very nice uh, overview of the landscape of AI governance and regulation and the mood and the tenor of the debates that are going on right now. I think broadly speaking, I think the infrastructural part of it, I think, could always 
do with some kind of a democratic underpinning and on top of it i think uh, multiple different models privately owned perhaps could be uh, allowed to flourish and the more they are the better for everyone thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and observations on this topic pleasure talking to you mate and thanks for inviting me and i'm glad to be here glad to, glad to have a conversation in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon